0: I want to thank those who came out yesterday and helped, and also lots of other work was happening throughout the week. So appreciate those of you who, uh, who helped to do that. I um, appreciate that very much. Turn to Exodus chapter 8 this morning. Exodus chapter 8. There are lots of things that are unique about genuine Christianity over against world religions. Uh, that we have in our day and throughout the centuries. One of the differences is that we serve a living God. False religions serve a dead leader or a leader who will soon be dead. We have a book that has recorded prophecy that is infallible, and that is every prophecy that has been made in the Old Testament and in the New Testament has been fulfilled or will soon be fulfilled. That is, none of the prophecies have failed third uh, difference is that we are not accepted by God on the basis of anything that we do. All other religions are works-based. I think one of the most um, significant differences is that genuine Christianity cannot be coerced. If someone put a gun to your head and said that you must be a Muslim for the rest of your life, you could actually be a faithful Muslim even against your will someone put a a gun to your head and told you to believe in Judaism or Catholicism or Mormonism or Hinduism or Buddhism, you could do that and you could actually do it well. Uh, but, But Christianity is different, isn't it? It is uncoerced faith. You see, God doesn't want unwilling followers. And so He doesn't even twist our arms to follow Him. We are created by God and God is sovereign over all. Including the hearts of every man, but that doesn't mean that he forces anyone to do what they don't want to do. And that includes our faith to him. We've been thinking about this uh, in a negative way. That is, with regard to evil, how God doesn't force any anyone to do what they want, what they don't already want to do. With regard to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. In fact, nine times in this. Uh, narrative in Exodus, we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But God's not forcing Pharaoh to do something that he doesn't want to do, right? As humans, we do exactly what we want to do. We are made with a free will to make our own choices. So when we understand that, we recognize that God doesn't force us to do anything. But at the same time, While we do have a free will, our free will is compatible with God's sovereignty, God's sovereign power. How? I don't know. I don't know how that works. But however it works, God can somehow be sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, his evil heart, while at the same time, Pharaoh does exactly what he wants to do resisting God holding the people of Israel under His power. And the same thing is true with regard to how God deals with us on the other side. God does not force us to worship Him. Do you realize that? He doesn't force us or coerce us. That is of no value to Him. right? What good is coerced worship? Think of it in two contrasting pictures. First, an evil dictator who is forcing people to bow down to Him. Right? There's one sense that those people have that they have to bow down to this evil dictator when they actually hate him. And contrast that picture with the king who doesn't coerce homage. right? One who has people who love him and who sing songs and write songs about him because they, they think that he's worthy of being their leader. Like David. Right? They. Saul killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. They loved David as their king. And this is what kind of worship God wants. He doesn't want to coerce worship. You must. Now, there will come a day when when that will be important and necessary, when God will coerce or not coerce, but He will demand that every single creature bow down to Him and they will be obliged to do so. But that's not the kind of worship that God wants Throughout all of eternity, that is, he doesn't. He's not looking for to, to spend all of eternity with people who are just kind of. Well, I don't really want to be here, but kind of forced to. He he wants to spend his eternity with people who love him and who have been shaped to be like him, and and uh, not with a, a multitude of coerced followers who, in their hearts, would rather be somewhere else. See, God is seeking out genuine worshipers. Heartfelt worshipers. And I say all that to point out that these plagues that God is bringing on Egypt are a means by which God arrests their attention apart from coercion so that they will recognize that He alone is God. And and that's what these plagues help to do. That It helps the, the people of Israel to see, and now that we're we have record of it, helps us to see God's great works and now we, we see God in a greater light, in a, in, a, in a better way, and now we happily follow Him. So let me read chapter 8, verse 20, through the end of the chapter. And uh, we'll cover a little bit more than that this morning, but I'll just read this first plague here that we're going to look at this morning. Chapter 8, verse 20. This is the Word of God. Now the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, As he comes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you, and on your servants, and on your people, and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of the servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to our God. Uh, for, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He commands us. Pharaoh said, "I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness." Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh from his servants and from his people not one remained but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and he did not let the people go God displays his supreme power in order to show his people and all people that he alone Is God. That's why God shows His power. He wants people to recognize that He alone is God. And He's going to do that so that Israel knows and that Egypt knows, and I would suggest that we know, that He alone is God. So here we have three plagues that we're going to look at. We just read the first one. We're also going to look at the plague of pestilence and the plague of the boils as well. So let's start with this first one. Number one, God's supreme power as displayed in the plague of the flies. This is actually is the fourth plague that we're looking at in chapter 8, verses 20-32. through 32. The warning to Pharaoh is given. This, that is, he has an opportunity to avoid this plague. If he will be willing to let the people of Israel go. go. And so Moses here meets Pharaoh according to verse 20. He's supposed to meet him in the morning near the river. This is the second time that they meet at the river. The first time was in the first plague when there was a plague of the water turning into blood. Here is the second time they meet at the river and they will one more time. And Pharaoh must have had some bad feelings when Moses was coming. He's like that guy at work that's kind of annoying. He's always got something more that he has to put on your plate. Oh, yeah, he's going to tell you I need you to do this thing for me. And something maybe that he should already be doing. That must be what Pharaoh must have been thinking about Pharaoh. Great. He's going to bring on more trouble to me. Notice the consequences if Pharaoh refuses. Verse 21, If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, your people, your houses. houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also on the ground. And so the extent of this plague is... Basically, everywhere in the land of Egypt, it even emphasizes that these at the end of verse uh, twenty one they will even be on the ground not not where we would expect these flying swarms to be, but but apparently they're also on the ground, so that a person could not even take a step without avoiding these pesky creatures and the first time, uh, we see that there's going to be a distinction made between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. Look at verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living. This is where Israel is, in the northeast part of Egypt, near the Mediterranean Sea. The land was a great land for farming and shepherding, and that's why the Egyptians didn't want to have anything to do with it. They allowed Israel to go there because they thought that was kind of a menial lifestyle, so they gave it happily to Israel to do. And what God is saying here is, I'm going to make a distinction. There, it, it, It's going to be clear that, that I've distinguished between you and my people. They're not going to experience this plague. In the first three plagues, they may have been able to be explained away as a natural phenomenon that just came across all the area, you know, kind of like a storm when it comes across the United States, that it just kind of covers everywhere. And... Um, And perhaps these could have been explained away in that way, but these next seven plagues cannot be because in all seven of these, there is a distinction clearly made between Egypt and Israel who is living in Goshen. And the reason that God would make this distinction, according to verse 23, I will put a division between... uh, I'm sorry, end of verse 22. So that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know... Okay, so this is Moses speaking to Pharaoh. "...in order that you, Pharaoh, will know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land." So Moses is speaking on behalf of God. Thus says the Lord, this is why you will know this, Pharaoh, so that you know that I am God and I am I am dwelling and, and seeking to redeem my people. That's why I'm making a distinction between them and you. Obviously, Pharaoh refuses... Um, to let the people of Israel go, and so God is going to bring about the plague. The miracle of this plague, uh, seen in verse 24, Then the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of the servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. The, the, The phrase that's, translated there. Swarms of flies actually comes from one word in the Hebrew language, and it actually could literally be translated as swarms. No flies are mentioned in the Hebrew text. However, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, remember you have many early Greek speakers in the first century church, and so they would want a Greek translation of the Old Testament. They didn't, a lot of them didn't know Hebrew. And that Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, suggests that these are actually flies. That when Moses is writing swarms, he's actually intending some kind of, and and the word that they use refers to a blood-sucking gadfly or a dogfly. And perhaps the reason that Moses used the generic word as swarms is that it included more than just flies. That it included all sorts of flying insects. All sorts of biting insects. And uh, this is likely that a swarm of several kinds of biting insects. And the reason I think that that it's not just ordinary house flies like we might think is because of the end of verse 24. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms. Literally, because of the swarms in all the land of Egypt. So the land was laid waste or as another translation puts it, ruined or destroyed. The land was destroyed because of house flies? No. It's because of some kind of biting insects also I think we know that this is this is something more than housewives because these plagues are intensifying they're getting worse as they go on they begin with pollution of the water and then an infestation of frogs and mosquitoes and now to these biting insects and just think about how much devastation this would bring on the people This was long before the establishment of wall-side windows, so they didn't have the nice screened windows where you can kind of just get away from all the elements and all the the insects that are outside, right? In the ancient Near East, the windows were much like a lot of the windows are in Africa and Brazil today. And that is just openings in the wall with no curtains, no coverings at all. In fact, if you had coverings over the window, it would actually be counterproductive because it it stops the, the flow of air from coming in to a a room that is stiflingly, stiflingly hot. And so you can see the intensifying of these plagues, that they were everywhere, in the houses, in the palace of Pharaoh, on the ground, everywhere. first three plagues were annoying and difficult to handle, but this plague starts to show what God's intention here. It is to lay waste of the land. It is to destroy the land, so that they get the picture that He is God. That is, he is going to destroy the land, the people, the animals, until they recognize that he is God. They certainly would have been very much frustrated with their life while these flies exist—these these biting flies and and all sorts of other insects. They certainly would would not be able to eat without swallowing some of these insects. They couldn't sleep without a swarm of insects over their bed. They couldn't work without being constantly bugged by these creatures. Possibly had trouble even seeing because they were so thick. We have no record of of the magicians trying to duplicate this miracle. We're going to see here in a couple that they seem to be around. These magicians are around for each of these plagues, but there's no record of it here. Um, and so this gets So difficult on Pharaoh and on the people that Pharaoh calls for relief in verses 25-29. through This is the second time that Pharaoh calls for relief. The first time was with the plague of the frogs. But instead of releasing them fully, Pharaoh, instead of releasing the people of Israel, he tries to negotiate with Moses. Notice what he does here in verse 25. He says in the second part, go sacrifice to your God, and then notice this phrase, within the land. That is, Within the land of Egypt, what was God demanding the people do? Let my people go, Pharaoh, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. They need to go three days' journey to get there. That is to be gone forever from underneath your control. Pharaoh knew this. They weren't asking for a short holiday to go worship God. If we can just have a weekend, that'd be great. We'll come back. That wasn't the idea. That we're we're leaving permanently, and that's what God is demanding of you, Pharaoh. To release your grip of us. So Pharaoh asks, or, or negotiates basically. He says, How about if you sacrifice in your land? Get rid of this plague for me, and I'll let you sacrifice in the land of Egypt. Moses uses wisdom here to respond in verse 26, but Moses said, It is not right to do so. Here we should commend Moses for his unwillingness to compromise. Moses may be thinking, Well, Maybe God will accept this. Maybe God will accept our sacrifice here in the land. So maybe we could figure out a way to make this work. But Moses here has come a long way from the first time that we saw him uh, even meeting with God and meeting with Pharaoh before. He was timid. He didn't want to use his mouth. Now he's willing to negotiate and to to really use some wise tactics in going after Pharaoh. Pharaoh tries to negotiate with him, but Moses forces the terms of the deal back on him. No, this is not... Allowed, God is not going to allow for this. And so you need to follow through on what God is calling for. But instead of just coming out and saying, Moses, God said this. Instead, he he appeals to Pharaoh's uh, intellect. He says effectively in verses 26 and 27, Pharaoh, if we did that, then you would be responsible for causing offense in your own religion. Look at verse 26. It's not right for... Uh, to do so, nor will we sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? Moses is saying, Listen, your people are going to be offended at us if we tried to sacrifice here. It's not that Moses is, is compromising here, it's that he's using, he's appealing to pharaoh's intellect because pharaoh's not thinking on spiritual terms that is that god is the god of the universe and he demands to be worshipped and so he's appealing to his intellect you think you can manipulate us into disobeying our god yet in reality what we would be doing is actually playing into your hands because you would still have control over us pharaoh i am not so foolish as to think that you are just going that you're concerned about obeying god here all you're trying to do is, is to keep your control over us. Either let us walk or the plague is coming. Well, Pharaoh agrees reluctantly. Verse 28, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice, in the wilderness. First he says, you can do it within the land. Now he says, when he realizes that Moses is wise to him, you can go into the wilderness. And... uh Moses sees right through Pharaoh's sinister plan in verse 29. And in the middle of the verse, he says towards the end, only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully against uh, again in not letting the people go. Listen, Pharaoh, I've seen what you've done before, and I can imagine that you will do it again, so don't do it. You just told us you will let us go, so do it. Make sure you follow through on your promise. But whatever the case, Pharaoh had agreed to let them go so, we have the removal of the plague in verses 30 and 31. Again, Moses doesn't wait around for God to just kind of let the plague dissipate. Instead, he goes and prays to God, knowing that God often and and most often accomplishes what He wants through the prayers of His people. And in verse 31, God removes the effects of the plague. So, the Lord did, did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies. Now, when he removed them, it doesn't mean that he just kind of took them all up and they flew out and they were gone. They probably died much like the frogs were removed in chapter 8, verse 11 and 13. That The frogs were removed from the land, but really they, weren't, they didn't kind of hop away and go somewhere else. They all just died and they had to pile them up in heaps. Once this plague is removed, Pharaoh does exactly what we expect of him. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. God shows the supreme power as displayed in the plague of the uh, swarms uh, of biting insects. Number two, God shows His supreme power as displayed in the plague of pestilence. This is the fifth plague now in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and, and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, Behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. The Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So here we have the warning. Moses goes again before Pharaoh, and he says, "Listen, this is the God of the Hebrews speaking. He's speaking through me to you, and he's telling you to let the people go." Pharaoh's starting to get his his question answered that he asked in chapter five, verse two: "Who is the Lord that I should obey Him?" He's starting to see what the answer to that question is. Notice God's purpose again. Verse 1, at the end, "...let My people go." Why? "...that they may serve Me." This is the point that we will need to be reminded of when we get to chapters 19-40. through 40, Because there we're going to wade through some difficult passages on the law and God's expectations for worship and all sorts of things. And we may kind of get bogged down, but, but we need to come back to passages like this that tell us the purpose in which God released them. Sometimes we think when God frees us from something, He frees us so that we're out from underneath that uncomfortable situation. But God also frees us to something. He delivers us to something. And that is to the rule of God. Out from underneath the rule of Pharaoh to the rule of God for the purpose of worshiping God. And that's exactly what this whole book is about. It's that God is releasing His people, delivering His people, chapters 1-18, through so that chapters 19 through 40, that they will worship Him. And that's what all those chapters are about. We're going to spend several weeks to look through those. Again, God gives Pharaoh an option. Listen, if you let them go now, you can avoid this plague. Or you can refuse and suffer. That's what verse 2 is about. Well, the, the plague this time is a severe pestilence on the livestock. Again, I think the plagues are intensifying. The first three plagues were inconvenient and annoying. The fourth plague, the, the swarms, brought ruin and destruction. It laid waste to the land of these biting insects. And the fifth actually brings fatality. For the first time now, we have direct the direct cause of the or the direct result of the plague is fatality. Now remember in the first plague we did have fatality with the death of the fish, but that was really indirect cause of what was happening to the water. On this one, it's actually going to destroy their livestock. Notice what kind at the end of verse 3. On the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. This likely was in direct opposition to the gods that they worshipped. Much like in India today, they worship several of these animals. They, they in Egypt, also worshipped animals like the bull. They had one specific bull that was set aside as their deity, their god, small g, it was supposed to have these 28 distinct markings on its body that made it some sort of deity. And when that bull died, well, they would have to replace it. And it was kept, kept near the temple of, of Ptah, apparently. And so they had all sorts of other animals that they worshipped as well. And God's saying, listen, I can destroy these that you think are gods to you. And obviously, this would have an effect on their lifestyle as Egyptians. They, this would really wake them up. You move from an annoyance to something that causes destruction now to something that actually causes death. It would affect their lifestyle very much. The timing of the fifth plague will happen according to God's plan. Verse 5, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing. And then here comes the miracle in verse 6. So the Lord did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel not one died. Now, what does Moses mean when he writes that all of the livestock of Egypt died? Certainly, he can't mean all because we have a hailstorm coming up that's going to destroy animals. So, he couldn't have, God couldn't have killed all the animals. Well, we know from the text that, that some are able to come in from, from protection. Notice in verse 3, Behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very se- severe pestilence on your livestock which are in the field. So there we know that there is some kind of a distinction between those animals that are in the field and those that are in some kind of a stable, some kind of protection, that they're going to protect, be protected from this pestilence. And certainly, even other times in the Scripture, the word all is used, but it doesn't always mean all. Even when we speak, we don't always mean all. Is that true? Right, we use the word all all the time. Don't we? See what I did there? Uh, we use all hyperbolically. okay? When we use that word, especially when we use it around young kids who are learning English, they always call us with a carpet on that. Would you really mean all on that? Uh, but, but that's because we're using it in a hyperbolic way and that's a completely appropriate way to use the word. So how do we know when the writers of Scripture mean all, every single one, or they just mean a lot, like I think what's meant here in verse 6? that all of the lives really a lot of the livestock have died. How do we know? And the answer is context. We need to see what's in the context. If we know that there's another plague coming and that it certainly can't mean all, then, then obviously uh, we, we know the answer. Paul knew hi, how hyperbole could be wrongly interpreted. And so in Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 10, he uses hyperbole not with the word all, but instead the word none. And he could have said there is none righteous. But how does he finish that? There is none righteous, not even one. See, he he makes it very clear. I'm talking about not one single person has been righteous. That is, who is born of a father and a mother has ever lived perfectly. And uh, and so I think that's what's going on here. That That several were spared because of God's mercy and because of down the road having other uh, plans in mind. There's no attempt at duplication by magicians or at least no record of it. There's no plea for relief here. Apparently, the removal of the plague is simply that the animals died and, and they moved on. The people moved on. Notice the response of Pharaoh in verse 7. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. Okay? Here's a way to, use, to, to make it clear. Not even one of their livestock had died. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. So, Pharaoh had heard in the warning that Pharaoh, God is going to make a distinction between your livestock and Israel's livestock. And none of them are going to die. So what Pharaoh does in verse 7 is he sends a messenger. Let's go see if anybody, in Israel, any animals in Israel died. Sure, sure enough, none of them did die. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Number three, God shows his supreme power as displayed in the plague of the boils, verses 8 through 12. In this one, much like the third plague, the, the mosquitoes, the gnats, there is no warning. There, there's no opportunity to escape this plague. God just brings it about. So this will also happen on the ninth plague as well. But here in the, the sixth plague, we have the plague of the boils, and simply it happens. Verse 8 Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take yourselves a handful. Uh, take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and they stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it towards the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. God shows His supreme power through the plague of the boils. Moses was to go to one of the the brick-making furnaces or the kilns and grab several handfuls of soot. And apparently he had to transport them to in front of Pharaoh, and he throws several of these handfuls in the air, and the handfuls of soot turn into this fine dust that goes over all the land. And it falls on the people apparently and and causes them to have these boils on their skin, both on man and beast. The animals as well were plagued by this miracle. Possibly they this boil. These boils included some of the same symptoms that Job experienced in Job 30.30. My skin turns black on me, he says. So while the first plagues were troublesome to the people and they provided major inconvenience, they weren't directly dangerous to the people, do you understand? But but these start to affect the individual person. Yes, there were some biting insects and, and so on. But now we have boils that come on the people that cause significant pain much more significant than a biting insect would. Verse 11, there's no attempt at duplication, but there are, there is this mention of the magicians being in their presence. Notice verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. The magicians, remember, are mentioned in the first, second, and third plagues. The first and second, they're able to duplicate. The third, they are not. But they're not mentioned in the fourth and fifth plagues, the ones that we just looked at. And the implication is that they're there the whole time. If Pharaoh had been using them all along to reverse the plagues, now we see them again. And here, they, they, they can't even stand before Moses because they're in such pain. They need relief from these plagues. And it shows the weakness of these, whom, uh, of whom Pharaoh uh, counted. On whom Pharaoh counted he, it shows power of the power of God and their utter inability to stand before him. no one can can stand up against God and win right God is all powerful and and they are weak in the sight of Moses in the sight of God. The response by Pharaoh again is one of hardening in verse twelve so one of the great reasons why God does. Things that He does in the way that He does is so that we and all the watching world will know that He is God. That's a verse 22, chapter 8, verse 22. I want to just draw your attention to that again. Chapter 8, verse 22. The second part of the verse says, "...in order that you, Pharaoh, may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of this land." We've been seeing this theme come up over and over again in the text. that that God is doing a specific work in order that Israel know that He is God and that Egypt know that He is God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We see this again. This is long after these events have taken place. In fact, 40 years after these events have taken place. Because following the Exodus, you have the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Deuteronomy is basically one sermon that lasts for 24 hours or or happens within a 24-hour period of time. And that's what these 28 chapters are all about. And here, Moses is recounting God's grace and what God was doing. Look at chapter 4, verse 33. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it? So here's Moses speaking to Israel, the chosen people of God. Verse 34. Or has a God, small g, tried to go to take for Himself a nation from within another nation by trials? by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God and there is no other besides Him. You see this same theme that we have seen in Exodus. Now Moses reminds them about this. Do you have any other God that you know of? that works in these great ways to show you that He is God? And obviously the implied answer is, no. God here is using His great power to draw the attention of His people to Him in an uncoerced way. God is not in the business of gathering unwilling followers. He is seeking to call out worshipers And not just any worshipers, but genuine worshipers. Worshipers who love Him and who worship Him from their hearts. That's why when Israel was going through the motions of worship during the time of the prophets, God wanted nothing to do with it. In Amos, He says, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your celebration of days. I'm sick of all this. In Malachi, God told Israel that He would not accept their second-rate sacrifices. You know, the ones that were blind and lame, the leftovers... Try giving those to your governor, he says. See how they'll like it. Christians, God did not draw you to Himself so that you could complain your way through life. Oh, here He goes again. Here here, God goes again, laying down another requirement for me. Oh, I sinned again. I'm sure He's not going to be happy with that. Friend, if you have little joy in the Christian life, if you find no satisfaction in being in a relationship with the Almighty God, then you ought to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If it is a drudgery to come to this place where we gather with other people who love God and listen to God speak, then could it be that there is no real relationship there? I hesitate to use this analogy because I recognize that it may lead you on a rabbit trail or making a comparison that I'm not intending. So I'll just trust that you will understand where I'm making the connection and recognize that I'm not speaking irreverently here, okay? But, but to make the comparison where I'm making the point of comparison. What would you think of your friend or daughter who is dating a guy that, that just had no pleasure in it? It was just a big drudgery. You know, Year after year, they date, but every time she thinks about him, she complains about this or that. When there's a time for her to actually go out on a date, she drags her feet and moans about all the things that she hates about Him. Right, what would you think about that? What would you tell her? Well, you don't even love Him. Why are you spending time with Him? See, having a relationship with a boyfriend is not precisely equivalent to having a relationship with God. And that's why I need you to to, to to focus here. But there is one element that I'm highlighting that ought to be obvious in both, and that is uncoerced love. If you don't find joy and satisfaction in knowing God and listening to God and serving God and talking to God and about God, then why are you spending time with Him? Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning and you're troubled by that. You know, I ought to have a love for God, but it is a big drudgery for me. It's a big chore for me to serve God. Maybe you're uncompelled by what God has done for you. And now that you think about that, that concerns you, that you don't have a desire for God like you ought to. And maybe you want to love God more, but you just don't know how. Well, I'm here today to tell you how to love God more. And here it is. Spend time with God. Spend time with God. I think this is the key to loving God. We don't love God as much as we should or as much as we'd like to because we don't know God. One of the phrases that is, or one of the statements that's made in this material that we're using for Christianity Explored is that if you don't see this news, the Gospel, as the best news that you've ever heard, then you don't understand it. And I would say something very similar. If you don't love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, you don't know God. You need to spend more time with Him. You need to reflect on Him more often. It's the same reason that Israel stopped loving God. And the same reason that Ephesus, the church there, and Revelation cooled in their love for God is because they forgot about what God had done. They forgot about what God had done for them. They forgot about His works. And do you realize that even as Christians, even as Christians, we often forget the great love that has been shown to us by the Almighty God. We forget that God is on our side, not opposed to us. We turn our, our gaze away from God and away from His works and onto the circumstances of our life that trouble us and to the difficult people that we have to live with or around and the insurmountable and sometimes self-inflicted problems our gaze is all on those is always on those things and yet god is saying do you remember what i did for you do you remember what i'm can you think about what i'm doing for you now god has has powerfully like he has here in, in exodus shown his works in a mighty way to us and in fact, He's orchestrating everything in this world to so that you will get your attention fixed on Him. And the greatest act that He has ever displayed in order to draw you to uncoerced worship was when He gave His Son. And if you are are failing to see that God loves you, then you need to think more clearly about what He did when He showed His greatest act of love and that is to give His Son as a sacrifice for your sin. So I would say if you are cool, cooled in your love for God, then you need to ask God to fuel the flame of your passion for Him. It should not be normal for Christians to walk through the Christian life as a drudgery. I recognize that at times we can get our eyes fixed on the wrong things, and that will take place but it should not be a normal or a regular or an ongoing thing, should it? Christians should be passionate about God, passionate about His glory, passionate about serving Him, passionate about loving and doing His law. And so, pray to God and ask for help. He he would love to hear from you as His child. Learn from others who adore Him. Do Do you know other people in this church who just are really passionate about serving God? Learn from them. Spend time with them. Ask for help from them. There's nothing greater in all of life than to have a relationship with the true and living God. God is using the events of your life and I would suggest even the preaching of His Word this morning to get your attention so that you might know that the Lord, He is God and there is none like Him. Father, we're thankful for the initiation that, uh, of, of Your work in our lives. Lord, we recognize that, that we didn't seek You. You sought us. So, so yes, there was a time in which we were involved in seeking You and trying to understand more clearly, and then we came to understand and we accepted You. But, but ultimately, all of that started because it was initiated by You. You revealed Yourself to us you are the God who is and you are the God who speaks. And you speak powerfully in many different ways. For Israel, it was in these mighty works and and uh, in, in removing them from the oppression of Egypt for us, it is displaying your majesty through the cross. And Lord, we even know of specific ways in which you have worked in our lives and yet we often forget those things We are quick to complain and to be frustrated with our lives. And we need Your help. We need Your grace to draw us back to a place where our hearts are passionate about Your glory and about following You. Lord, who gets excited about doing right? Who gets excited about serving You but those within whom You have done a work and those You are drawing to Yourself in an uncoerced way? Lord, we pray for Your mercy upon us this morning. And we pray that You would strengthen the hearts of believers as they think about specific ways in which they can know You better and serve You better and be more passionate about doing so. Pray for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen.